Welcome to Jury Duty. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis. This season of Jury Duty explores the trial of Michael Barrison, who was charged with the attempted murders of Lauren Canarick and Robert Goodwin. Canarick was struck in the chest by two bullets from Barrison's weapon, and as it was undisputed that Barrison fired those shots, his legal team argued that he was not guilty because he was legally insane and, in the alternative, because he fired those shots in self-defense. In our first episode, we examined Judge Stephen Taylor's instructions to the trial's jury. In this installment, we present Prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn's opening statement to that jury. That's coming up right after the break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. During the late morning of March 28, 2022, Judge Stephen Taylor gavels in the session to allow Prosecutor Christopher Shellhorn to deliver his opening statement to the jury in the trial of Michael Barrison. However, before the jury is brought back into the courtroom, Judge Taylor has some pointed words for the defendant. Mr. Barrison, when the court's making a ruling, I don't expect to see you put your head down on a table again. You understand me? It's inappropriate to do that. If you disagree with my rulings, that's fine. I don't want to see you put your head on the table again. Whatever it is that prompts the judge to issue this admonishment is not captured on video. However, it bears mentioning that Barrison, who in photographs taken around the time of the shooting appeared to be fit with close-cropped hair, appears in court with long, stringy gray hair, a wan complexion, and bloodshot, sometimes teary, eyes. After Barrison nods in acknowledgement of Judge Taylor's admonishment, Taylor invites Shellhorn to begin his opening. Thank you, members of the jury. We are ready to commence with opening statements. Mr. Shellhorn? Christopher Shellhorn is in his 40s. He is tall and thin, sporting close-cropped brown hair with longish sideburns. He wears a dark suit, white shirt, and a red, white, baby blue, and dark blue striped tie. He addresses the jury directly without any audiovisual aids. Thank you, Good morning. Thank you again all for being here today and for serving on the jury. 411 West Mill Road is an equestrian farm, a 50-acre equestrian farm and training facility located in Washington Township, New Jersey. When you turn from West Mill Road onto the property, there's a long driveway that goes back almost directly through the center of the property. The first thing you see on your left is a white farmhouse that's been subdivided into several smaller living areas that are interconnected but basically separate areas for people to live. And behind the the farmhouse there, there's a parking lot or a little driveway. And as you continue up the uh, long driveway through the middle of the property, it comes to a slight rise, and then it descends down into a parking area where you can see the real reason that people come to this property, this farm that's sometimes known as Hawthorne Hill. And that's a training facility there. It's an equestrian training facility to the right. There's a, a long stable with a number of stalls for dozens of horses. There are outdoor training arenas and fields for the horses to go through their training and for the riders to learn and train. 
Connected to the stable through a hallway is a locker area with uh, various different equestrian materials and, and equipment, saddles, things of that nature. And then that leads into what's called the clubhouse. Now, if you take a step back out to the parking lot, you can also get into the clubhouse through a, a large front porch, and then you walk through a, an opening and an entranceway, and then you come into this clubhouse, which is basically like a long lounge. It's almost the entire width of the building. It has a kitchen on the right, a long table, uh, a row of walls. Uh, the entire wall is glass, and it looks out onto an indoor training arena. There are comfortable couches, chairs, things of that nature. There's a pool table. Off to the left, there's a, a small office to the side. And you'll notice when you see some of the pictures during the course of the trial that the walls all have various photos and pictures of horses and other equestrian-related things. There's also a number of awards, ribbons, medals, many of them earned and awarded to the defendant in the trial, Michael Barrison. Now, I expect you'll learn during the course of the trial that the defendant was an accomplished equestrian. He trained and, and rode in a form of equestrian called dressage, which for those of you who may not be familiar of it, you may have only seen it once or twice in the Olympics. It's a form of horse riding where the rider guides or directs the horse through a series of predetermined specific motions or steps. And you can imagine it takes great skill for the rider to be able to guide the horse through those predetermined steps or movements. But it also takes a great deal of training for the horse to learn those things and to be able to do that. And you'll hear about how the defendant operated his business, Barristone Dressage, not just at that property in Long Valley, but also at another property that he owned in Loxahatchee, Florida. And generally, during the course of the year, he and his uh, people that he was working with and the, the horses that he was working with would train down south in Florida during the winter months when it was too cold to train in New Jersey. And then they would come north in the summer when it was too hot to train in Florida. I expect you'll learn that the defendant, Michael Barrison, ran that business uh, for a number of years. And then he had other people who worked with him at times, specifically uh, a man named Justin Harden, who was his assistant trainer and did a lot of the day-to-day -day taking care of the, the property and the farm during the course of a day, making sure that the arenas were all groomed properly. There were a number of uh, working students who would work and live at the farms, and they would take care of the horses, and again, take care of some of the more day-to-day -day things. But the defendant was really the reason that people came to that business, because of his success. He had ridden at the highest levels of, of dressage. He had coached uh, other athletes at the highest levels of dressage. And he had also coached a number of horses and trained a number of horses throughout the course of his career. Now, I'm sure you can all imagine, we didn't ask you all to, to step away from your life just to celebrate the defendant and to hear about his accomplishments as, a, as an equestrian, as a coach, as a businessman. We asked you to serve on this jury because of what the defendant is accused of doing at that property on August 7, 2019. On August 7, 2019, he's accused of taking a gun leaving that clubhouse that I talked about, getting into his car in the parking lot, driving up the driveway over that slight rise, coming into the back uh, parking lot where the farmhouse is, getting out with that gun, confronting two people who were living in the farmhouse, pointing the gun at the woman, Lauren Kenrak, and shooting her twice in the chest. Then turning the gun on Robert Goodwin, her boyfriend, as he fled into the house and shooting another shot at Robert, but missing. That's the purpose of why we're here for this trial. Now, I'll pause for a moment just to mention that 
I'm not going to tell you every detail about this case during the course of my opening. There are things that I'm intentionally leaving out. And that's because of something the judge told you last week during jury selection, something he told you this morning, and he'll tell you that again, I'm sure, at least one more time before the trial is over. What I say, what Mr. Bolinkus may say, is not evidence. The evidence doesn't come from the attorneys. It doesn't come from the judge. The evidence will come from that seat right there, the witness stand. The witnesses who come through that door take an oath to tell you the truth, and then any evidence that the judge allows to be admitted. So if I'm leaving certain things out, that's intentional at this point, because the purpose of my opening is just to give you something of a roadmap so you know what to expect is going to be coming with some of the other witnesses who testify. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In the next part of his opening, Prosecutor Shellhorn offers the jury background on some of the key witnesses in the case. Now, you heard me mention Lauren Kenrick and Rob Goodwill, and they were living at the farm, as I said, during the summer of 2019. And I expect you'll come to learn that Lauren was also a rider. She was an equestrian who rode uh, different forms of, of horses during the course of her life, but she at that time in her life was training for dressage, and she hoped that she would achieve a higher level of training. And so she wanted to work with the defendant because of his reputation. She owned a number of horses that she was stabling there. And as you can imagine, the best things in life are not free. So she was, of course, paying the defendant for the opportunity to work with him and to have her horses coached by him. And so you'll hear how she was doing that there. And at times she would work with Justin Harden, the defendant's other trainer. And at times she would work with the defendant's girlfriend, Mary Haskins Greff. You'll come to hear how Mary Haskins was also being coached by the defendant. She had aspirations to reach these higher levels. Mary Haskins and the defendant also owned a number of forces together. And you'll hear that at times, Orrin was asked to work with Mary Haskins and to have Mary Haskins work with her. Now, as you can imagine, what I just told you about August 7, 2019 didn't happen because the training was going well. It didn't happen because things between these people was all perfect. I think it's quite to the contrary. You're going to hear about how bad things were at Hawthorne Hill in August of 2019. You'll hear about how the defendant and his girlfriend, Mary Haskins, were hassling and giving a hard time to Lauren and Rob. And you'll hear how Lauren and Rob were giving a hard time back and hassling back to the defendant and Mary Haskins. You're going to hear how they were really arguing on an almost daily basis at that point how the police had been called out to the property starting July 31st on almost a daily basis because these people just could not get along. You'll even hear about how not just the defendant and his girlfriend Mary Haskins, but also Lauren and Rob were making complaints or reports up to the highest levels of the sport, the U.S. Equestrian Foundation and Safe Sport, which is an agency that you may have heard of that basically oversees Olympic-level sports and tries to prevent abuse and misconduct by the coaches or the players or other people involved. So both of these 
these groups of people have it in for one another, and they are making complaints against one another, and they are at odds. Having established the context for the shooting, Shellhorn next seeks to redirect the jury's attention back to the defendant and his actions. I mention all of that now in my opening because it's obviously part of the case. It's something you're going to hear from the witnesses. It's something you'll hear about. But it's important to remember something the judge told you last week, something he told you this morning, and something he'll tell you at the end of the trial. And that's that when you go back to delivery and you're, you're asked to return a verdict, it will not be about Lauren Kenrick. It will not be about Rob Goodwin. It will not be about Mary Haskins. It will not be about any other person except this man. This man, the defendant, is the one on trial. So you may hear things that you don't like about Lauren or Rob or Mary Haskins or any of these other people. But saying nasty things, misbehaving, if you want to call it that, none of that is a justification to get shot. None of it creates a necessity for that person to be killed. No, we're here on this trial because of the defendant's choice on August 7th, 2019. His choice to get a gun, a pink and black nine millimeter handgun, to point that gun at Lauren and pull the trigger twice, and then to turn it on Rob and pull the trigger again. Now, I imagine some of you are probably wondering about that pink and, and black handgun, and it's, it's obviously an unusual description for a handgun. So you probably have some questions about where that handgun came from. Why did the defendant have it? And I hope and expect that during the course of the trial, you're going to find that out. There's another woman who owned horses at the defendant's farm, and her name is Ruth Cox. And Ruth Cox is a, a resident of North Carolina. You're going to hear how she owned horses with the defendant. She owned horses with his girlfriend, Mary Haskins and how she would travel north to New Jersey every couple of weeks to check on the horses. She would travel south to Florida during the winter months to check on the horses. She would go to horse shows and see how the horse was competing. And you'll hear how she got here to New Jersey, to the farm, on about August 2nd, so several days before the shooting incident. I expect you'll hear that at some point between then and the day of the shooting, she was alone with the defendant in the stables and he asked her for her gun, which was a pink and black nine-millimeter handgun. I expect you'll hear that she gave him that handgun, that it was in the case, that it was unloaded, and that she gave him that handgun and didn't see it again until after the shooting happened. I also expect you'll hear that Ruth Cox was charged with a crime as a result of that, that she was charged with unlawful transfer of a firearm. So that brings me back to August 7th, the day of the shooting. What led to the shooting on that day at that time? If things were so bad between these people, why did the shooting happen on August 7th? Well, I expect you'll hear that a caseworker from the Division of Child and Permanency and Protection, sometimes called DCPP or DIFUS or Child Services, came to the farm in that early afternoon as a result of the complaint that had been made to SaySport. I expect you'll hear that the caseworker pulled down that long driveway, that she pulled into that parking lot, and the very first person that she met outside the clubhouse or the stable was the defendant. She didn't tell him anything about why she was there, just that she needed to speak with Mary Haskins, the defendant's girlfriend. That's because the defendant's girlfriend, Mary Haskins, had two children who would occasionally live at the farm or come stay at the farm if they were on a break from school or something else. Caseworker Mary Haskins then went into the office that I described, inside 
of that clubhouse. And they were meeting in there. And I expect you'll hear that the defendant came in and interrupted them. First once, then a second time. And the third time he interrupted them, he told the two women that he needed the office, that they needed to continue their conversation in another part of the property. And so they left the office and left him alone in that office. That office is where the defendant's gun safe was. And I expect you'll hear that on the top shelf of that safe, they found a black and pink gun case, the same gun case that Ruth Cox had given the gun to the defendant in. I expect you'll also hear that on the shelf below it, there was an open box of nine millimeter ammunition that was also open with a number of bullets missing. So after the caseworker and Mary Haskins left the office and the defendant was alone in the office, it was shortly after that that he got into his car in the parking lot and drove that truck up over the rise on the driveway and pulled into that parking lot behind the farmhouse. I expect the evidence will show that Rob first spoke with the defendant while Rob was standing on the porch and that there's a, a large bush next to the doorway area such that Rob really couldn't see anything from below the defendant's chest or so. And that he, he, the defendant, said words, something to the effect of, how do we end this without a war? I expect you'll hear that Lauren then came out of the house, or Lauren was walking down the, the steps of the uh, porch, and that's when the defendant pulled out the gun and shot her twice, puncturing her lung, causing massive internal bleeding, life-threatening injuries, that she was fortunate enough to survive. And that's why this is an attempted murder case. You'll hear that Rob was able to subdue the defendant and hold him on the ground until the police got there because Lauren was able to call 911 after she'd been shot. Again, there are many details that I'm leaving out. This is just a, a rough sketch of what I expect you'll hear during the trial, but hopefully it gives you an idea of what to expect over the next couple of weeks. Shellhorn concludes his opening by offering the jury some guidance for how to apply the law to the facts in this case. The last thing I want to mention before I sit down is the law. Now, hearing the evidence, hearing the facts would mean nothing to you if you didn't have law to apply it to. And I'm imagining that the way that this case will, will move and progress is going to dictate what law the judge gives you at the end of the trial. But I can tell you about two parts of the law that are interconnected that I virtually guarantee that the judge will tell you at the end of the trial. I have to say, if I say anything different from what the judge tells you at the end of the trial, as you know, he's the judge of the law. He gives you the law, it doesn't come from me, it doesn't come from Mr. Belingus, it doesn't come from any witness who may testify. The law only comes from the judge. But I think it's important to highlight these two parts of the law now so you have an idea of what to expect as you're hearing that testimony and hearing that evidence. The first thing is that the burden of proving the defendant guilty of those crimes, attempted murder and possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose, that rests on the state. You recall Mr. Bennett and I introduced ourselves to you during jury selection last week. That is our burden to prove. That burden to prove him guilty will never shift to the defense. It's a heavy burden, as the judge said, beyond a reasonable doubt, but it doesn't mean beyond every doubt. And what I expect Mr. Bennett and I will do over the course of the next days and weeks is call witnesses and present you with evidence that will leave you firmly convinced that the defendant committed these crimes. Evidence that you can rely on to make your verdict without any passion, any sympathy, any prejudice, any of those things the judge mentioned, 
that your verdict will be based on the evidence that we produce. The second part of the law that I want to mention is connected to that. And that's about the two charges that the defendant is on trial for. Now, there are two victims, so there's two counts of each of these charges. But the first charge, possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose, means that his possession, the defendant's possession of that pink and black 9mm handgun on August 7th, was unlawful because he had an intention to use it or a purpose to use it unlawfully against Rob or against Lauren in shooting him. The other charge, attempted murder, requires Mr. Bennett and I to prove to you beyond a reasonable doubt that the defendant took a substantial step to cause their deaths. Now, if you remember back to jury selection last week, and I know for some of you that was a full week ago, some people mentioned that they like to watch crime procedurals on TV. Some people like the dramatization, some people like the documentaries. But the one thing that everyone acknowledged was that the law on TV is not the same as it is in real life. And certainly the law can change and be different from state to state. So that's why Judge Taylor will give you the law at the end of the trial that applies here in New Jersey. I mention that because some of you may have had a, a preconception or a notion that murder or attempted murder requires evidence of planning or preparation or premeditation. But a person can commit even the most terrible crime under the influence of an impulse, an impulse that impacts their restraint, that causes them to ignore that restraint that may ordinarily stop them or prevent them from committing a crime, from committing murder. But in that moment of emotion, in that moment of impulse, they ignore the ability to tell the difference between right and wrong. They ignore the ability to understand what they're doing and commit that act anyway. And so even though it may not have been an act that was preconceived or premeditated or planned out in great detail long before that, the person can still act with purpose. The last thing I want to mention is connected to that as well. And that's that I expect the judge will tell you that you can infer a defendant's purpose was to take a life, was to kill, if that person used a deadly weapon, a handgun. Now again, in this case, you'll be instructed a handgun is a deadly weapon. And I expect you to hear evidence that the defendant did use that deadly weapon against Lauren and against Rob. And so you can use that alone to infer that his intent was to cause death. I expect the evidence to show that on August 7th of 2019, the defendant was angry. He was furious. He was frustrated. He was upset. He was angry with Lauren and he was angry with Rob. He knew what he was doing when he went into that safe. He knew what he was doing when he loaded bullets into the gun. He knew what he was doing when he left the clubhouse, drove down that driveway and pulled into the parking lot to confront them. And he most certainly knew what he was doing was wrong when he pointed the gun at them and tried to kill them. I'm sure that I'll have more to say at the end of the trial. I want to thank everyone for your attention this morning. Thank you all for being here. I appreciate it. And at the end of the trial, Mr. Bennett and I will ask you to find the defendant guilty of attempted murder and possession of a weapon for an unlawful purpose. Thank you, Judge. Thank you, Mr. Shellhorn. That concludes this episode of Jury Duty, the trial of Michael Barrisone. Join us on our next installment as we begin our look at the opening statement by defense attorney Edward Belinkus. If you would like to listen to these episodes early and ad-free, head over to our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods 
for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. You can find more information about this trial on our Jury Duty Crime Story Patreon page or at crimestory.com. Jury Duty is created, hosted, and produced by yours truly, Carrie Antholis. It was co-produced and edited by Chris Taracone. Music for this episode was provided by Strike Audio, and trial audio is courtesy of Law and Crime Networks. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you will come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Michael Barrison.